Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Professor Smith, who's the author of a new book called Tweet, a little book with big feelings and short recipes for very busy lives. Welcome to the show, David. Hi, Christina. Nice to talk to you. I'm so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about this book and why you wrote it. But before we jump into that, I wonder if you will please tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm from the UK and I'm an academic in a chemistry department. So I'm a professor of chemistry at the University of York here in England. It's a very historic town in the north of England. And I've worked here for a number of years. Um, I do lots of research into material science. I'm really interested in gels. But I guess the reason that I'm here is to talk to you about Tweet, as you mentioned, the book, which is a completely different venture to me from my academic life normally. And it shares some family recipes and tells the story of my family as well. That was something really interesting to get involved in. It it is an amazing story in the book. Um, I I do want to ask you a couple of questions. Just uh, listeners themselves uh, are either in academia or interested in uh, pursuing higher ed. And I like to ask guests a bit about what drew them to their field in the first place. Could you tell us a little bit about your own educational journey and what drew you to studying chemistry? Sure. So um, in high school, I always enjoy, I like sciences and I like languages. Um, And it was my chemistry teacher that really pulled me into chemistry. I had uh, two chemistry teachers in high school. One was a real showman. He did experiments on the front bench. He really brought chemistry to kind of visceral life in front of us all. And then I had another chemistry teacher who was a real kind of academic uh, man. and, And he lent me Linus Pauling's The Nature of the Chemical Bond, a really classic chemical text. And 
this combination of the two teachers just hooked me into the real potential that chemistry had, its practical potential, but also the real kind of intellectual side behind it. So I went to study chemistry myself at university um, and was hooked from then on, really, and um, went into a research career and ended up as an academic here. My, uh, my background is women's history, and I, I like to look at everyday lives and dailiness. And a couple of things that have always struck me when I'm, when I'm doing my research is that there's a great deal of math involved in quilting mm-hmm. and that there's a great deal of science involved in cooking. So to me, it's not that surprising that um, a science professor wrote a cookbook, (laughs) but I know that you were inspired to write it for a different reason. Would you tell us what inspired you to write Tweet? I was. um, So I, I was married to my husband for a number of years. We got married in 2010. We'd met in 2006. Um, And my husband had cystic fibrosis. And he went on to have a double lung transplant. And actually, his medical history has inspired a lot of the research that we do as well. A lot of the science that we do is focused around solving problems that would be relevant in healthcare settings that are relevant to things like transplantation. Um, So it's inspired me in many different ways. We went on to adopt a little boy in 2014 who came to live with us. And Then sadly, in about 2017, 2018, Sam became really quite ill with rejection of his transplant and he died early in 2019. Um, And after that, food really was one of the things that kept me and my son together. Food had been massively important to Sam. Cooking had been a huge part of our life and it became a big part of mine and my son's life. Uh, And having cooked for him, I started sharing recipes on Twitter. And gradually I came to this idea that I wanted to capture these recipes and these ideas and these memories as well in a more permanent form. So both the food and the way in which it resonated with the story and history of our family was something that I really wanted to capture. Uh, And so when we were partway through lockdown, that was something that I began to do in little tiny bits of spare time that I would get in evenings um, to pull together tweets that I'd made about things that I cooked and start to put together the book itself. And Sam's family was, they, they were cooks. They were the ones who taught him to cook and then he's the one who brought you in. Is that uh, that's, that's quite funny, really. No, um, Sam was a brilliant cook. Sam was a really good cook. Um, his mum let's just say, isn't the most enthusiastic of cooks. And I think that's why her boys grew up to be really good cooks, actually. They, they love to take over in the kitchen. Um, and so Sam was a brilliant cook. Um, and, and so between, uh, I also enjoyed cooking, but it was Sam's real passion for it that ignited my love for it as well. I think there's, a, there's another thing there. You hinted at it earlier on. I'd always worked as a bench chemist. I'm a practical chemist. I I make things. I do synthesis. I work in a lab where I do practical manipulations. And it's really like cooking in many ways. And as I became an academic and I stepped back from the bench, I wasn't doing that cooking in the lab anymore. I was thinking of research ideas and managing a team and, and, and those kind of things, but not practically doing stuff. And it was about that time as well that I became more interested in cooking because I wasn't doing it at work anymore. And the skill set's really quite similar. And so that coincided really with meeting Sam, me stepping back more from the lab, um, and that passion that developed for cooking between the two of us, really. 
I, I feel a lot in common with Sam's mom. I am a very reluctant cook. The kitchen <laughs> is not where I feel confident. But your book really breaks all the recipes down into really manageable steps. Uh, I'm about halfway through the recipes, that, um, and I found a couple that I feel like I could do. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's great to hear because that was partly the intention. Um, because I was sharing what I was cooking on Twitter. Um, and I was doing that partly, I mean, I did it after Sam passed away, partly as a way of saying, we're okay, we're coping, you know, I'm feeding my son, we're getting on all right. And partly as a way of sort of sharing a meal with somebody wider, I, I was so used to sharing food with Sam and, and sharing food with my six-year-old son is nice, but it's not quite the same. And so I wanted to share those things. And then people started asking, well, how do you cook that? How do you make it? And so I started boiling the recipes down into tweet size. And, and that was really the concept and became the concept of the book, that the recipes should be explainable in approximately 280 characters. And that's pretty tough, right? To explain something that might be quite complex very briefly. And I think, again, it's something where my science background really helped. One of the things we do as chemists all the time, particularly experimental chemists, is describe our experimental procedures. And we have to do it briefly, and we have to do it accurately and precisely, and we have to do it in a way that anybody else in a lab anywhere else in the world could reproduce. It's the absolute heart of chemistry. And so that idea of a simple set of instructions that could be reproducible in as stripped back language as possible was something that I felt came out of my science training. And that's what I then tried to do. So each recipe in the book is described in 208 characters, roughly, and it might be three or four lines of hopefully simple, logical instructions. That's, that's the goal anyway. And you provide us with uh, substitutions we can use, and you also show us a picture of the finished product. So uh, it, it does uh, track for being an experiment. Here's what you can use. Here's what you can't use. Here's what it should look like when you're done. That's right. I think that's really important. Firstly, the finished product helps me get away with a little bit of the explanation because perhaps I don't need to explain how to put it on a plate or how to present it because there's a picture. So you can infer that from once you get to the key point. So, so it was helpful to have a picture to me as well as a writer. But I think a reader of a cookbook really needs to see pictures. I mean, you eat with your eyes. Um, and so that was always really important to me was getting color pictures into the book. Um, that was a key aspect. And then, and then, yeah, I do like to experiment with food and I very much think about what flavors would substitute for what flavors. And that is also the way we work in the lab. You know, how would you swap this molecule for that molecule? Would that still work? Is there something in that molecule that might mean that it sends the experiment a little bit off? It's the way we think about chemistry and formulating our materials in the lab. And so it's the way I think about cooking as well, I think. And that definitely comes through the these are sourceable materials. Some cookbooks are frustrating and they'll tell you that these are easy to do or it's just you will have all these things in your pantry. And I think you've clearly never seen my pantry <laughs> or the pantry of anyone who's afraid to cook or who didn't get taught how to cook. Because my pantry, I don't even know how to pronounce some of these things that you want me to get. I don't know where to get some of these things that you want me to get. And you actually take us through that. You say this is seasonal. Um, so now's a good time to cook this. And here's a substitute fish if this fish isn't available because they don't all have the same viscosity for lack of a better yeah. word. Um, and so you can't just substitute all fish. Yeah. Um, and uh, you take us through those things. 
And you say there, um, Sam is a huge influence throughout the book. And then there's some uh, professional cooks who are also influences for you. Can you talk about who those are? Yeah, so, so that's really important. I mean, because I love cooking and I've enjoyed writing about cooking, but equally I am not I, I invent some recipes, but not every recipe in that book was invented by me from scratch. Lots of them are either classic dishes that have been known for years or are adapted or inventions of various chefs that I've read. I love reading cookbooks. Uh, me and Sam both did. Um, and so a number of chefs have been really influential on me. Well, food writers more than chefs, I'd say. Um, so the English writers, Nigel Slater, uh, Nigella Lawson and Diana Henry, have all been huge influences and none of them are restaurant chefs. They're all people who write about food. They're all people who will do something simply if it tastes good. And that to me is really important. If you read a book written by a restaurant chef, partly they want to show off their chops in the kitchen. They want to show off how brilliant they are at cooking. And so what you end up with as a recipe is quite complex. Whereas food writers, they care more about the simplicity, the reproducibility, would it work in a kitchen at home? And also, to some extent, the emotion and the feeling behind that food as well. That's something that's important to some of those food writers. It's something I really wanted to capture in the book, not only the recipes, but the feelings and the emotions that lie behind them, how that food makes you feel. And that was really important to us when we were, I mean, to some extent, we're still grieving the loss of Sam. And when you go through something like that, you want food that's simple to put together because you're busy and you're working and you, know, you don't want to be stressed with it. But you want food that delivers a lot of comfort and makes you feel good and brings back memories of things as well. And so there's a lot of that in the book. And grief makes you tired. It really does. It really does. And, and as well, he's now an eight-year-old son, but an eight-year-old son also makes you very tired, um, particularly as a single parent and working and everything else. And so the book has to work around those things. And that's why often the recipes boil down to four lines. That's all that my brain can cope with at the end of a day. I'm going to do this and then this and then this and then this, and then we're going to have an amazing meal. And the meals can be done in about 20 minutes or so. And if it's going to take longer, you tell people so they can plan, like, maybe you want to do this on a Sunday afternoon or, uh, you know, not on a Thursday night when you're burned out and have one more work day to get through. Um, and that's very helpful. Um, you also talk very honestly about the attitude that you and Sam cultivated about food around your son to create a specific kind of atmosphere Um that I think is really helpful for listeners who, who have a picky eater or who are picky eaters themselves, because that's a real thing. Can you talk about how you've made this positive way of uh, tasting and trying food? Yeah, so uh, that, that was always really important to us because food was so important to me and Sam that when we adopted, we really hoped that our son would be interested in food. And he was nearly two when we adopted him. And Firstly, we were lucky. He, he does genuinely love food and he's always been an enthusiastic eater. But he came to us eating quite a limited range of things like most two-year-olds do, really. And so part of what we did was think about how do we get him into different kinds of food. And we didn't ever want to make food a battle. So that was really important to us. Um, so we'd put together a plate of food 
Um, we'd only ever talk positively about food. So even though there were things that Sam doesn't like, uh, one of them is aubergines. There were things that I don't like. One of them is cauliflower. Um, although there are things that we didn't particularly like, we'd never talk about that at the dinner table. So I'd never say, oh, I don't really like that. Or, oh, I don't really like that. Food was always a positive. So we were trying to imprint that food was interesting and a positive thing to be tried. And then fundamentally, as long as he tried stuff, we'd always... That, that was it. He could leave stuff on the plate. And I'd try and design food for him where I knew there was one or two things that he'd really love on the plate. So he really likes beetroot, for example. He, he just always has. And so I'd quite often put together dishes that would involve beetroot as one of the components because I knew he'd eat that and that would make him interested in the dish. Um, and so I'd hook into things that he really liked. And then I put some things on the plate that I was perhaps less sure whether he'd like or not, or something that was a bit spiced or a fish that he'd never tried before. And he'd give that a go. Uh, and sometimes he'd really like it. Sometimes he'd try it and the first time not be that enthusiastic. We'd never be negative about that. We'd never say you must finish your plate. You've got to eat what's in front of you before you get your pudding. We never went down those lines. Try it. Talk about what it tastes like what did it taste like to you? What did you like about it? What did you not like about it? What was the texture like? You know, was it salty? Was it sour? Was it, how was it? And, and so we've always approached food with a lot of communication and only positivity and not really letting him say, I don't like things. It's, it's more just, well, if you don't want it this time, that's fine. We'll, we'll try some more another time, cook it a different way, try and make it more palatable. It sounds like you approach it with curiosity about the experiment. Was it salty? Was it sweet? Was it too mushy? Was it too tough? You, you, they really, he, rather than just a flat out, I don't like this or this is awful. Instead, it's the curiosity of uh, analyzing all the aspects of it. Yeah, it's quite interesting. And uh, getting him to think about that, it's one of the ways that you develop your palate. And oh, there was once I cooked a pudding and I screwed it up. I, I, I messed up the, the recipe and got it wrong. And uh, I served it anyway. And he goes, nah, this isn't like usual. It, it's not It's not right. There's something wrong with it. And and I said, yeah, you're right. You're right. I did make a mess in the recipe. Just a, just a little one. And um, he said, it's the topping. The topping's wrong on this crumble. It doesn't taste like a crumble topping should taste. I said, right. So the ingredients in a crumble are flour and butter and sugar, basically. Um, what do you think I've used too much of? And what do you think I've not used enough of? And he goes, it's too soft. Uh, so I said, well, which of those is soft? It's the butter. And he says, yeah, there's, there's too much butter in this. And he was bang on. That was the problem. I'd put too much butter in my crumble topping um, and not corrected it. And he could kind of pick that out. Um, because he was used to tasting things and talking about how it, how it felt for him. Um, it was really sweet. Actually, we took him on holiday to when Sam was around, we went to, to Spain and we sat on the seafront somewhere and we ordered a big bowl of paella. That was one of the things we always did, you know, the prawns in it, the rice, the bits sticking out squid, all the different seafood. We loved it. And he was probably four or five at the time. And we all sat around as a family eating this big bowl of paella. Right. And the waiter came over to us and he said, wow, it's so good to see this. You're not like most of the British families that we have here. Most of the British families, they want a separate 
a plate of fish fingers for the kids and chips. And the kids wouldn't sit around eating the paella. He said, this is how we do it in a Spanish family. The kids would be eating and tasting and talking with their, with their two daddies. And he said, oh, it's a really beautiful thing to see. And yeah, I, it's, that's one of the memories that I, I cherish, actually. It's really nice. That memory is um, talked about on the last page of uh, the book. Um, and you, uh, at that point, you said you had not been able to eat that dish again. It was too evocative of Sam. <laughs> That's true. I've still not cooked that dish. Um, I mean, partly it's cooking a paella is a big job and it's something that's better done for a crowd of people. And with just me and the eight-year-old, sometimes the motivation to cook something like that is harder to get, but it's still something that I've, yeah, I've not been able to really face cooking since. So that's on my list of, I'll get there with that one. There are other things that, that you know, I've got around to cooking, but paella's not. If we could circle back to the story of the crumble, it seems mm -hmm. there's so much there that's um, a model for teaching. Mm -hmm. Your son has the tools for how to talk about something that went wrong without being insulting. And you had the uh, opportunity to talk about something that went wrong without being embarrassed or defensive. Um, and so you were all able to talk about the analysis of what it should have been, what it was instead. And it seems that both in parenting and in teaching, there's a lot there. Yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's probably true. I'd never thought about it in those terms. I love the educational side of my job, right? So lots of academics will talk with great passion about their research, um, perhaps fewer talk with great passion about their teaching, but I've always absolutely loved it. I became an academic as much because I love the teaching side as the research side. And I've published educational papers about kind of innovative things that I've done in terms of chemistry education. And I'm always looking at experimenting, if you like, on the students that I teach here in York and finding better ways to engage with them, better ways to make them think critically, communicate about science, all those things have been always really important to me. Sort of student-centered approaches, communicative approaches are really important. So perhaps that does spill over into that example that you mentioned in my own home a little bit. I think I also think teaching runs in families and both my parents were teachers and my grandma was a teacher as well. And I think there's sort of genes for education. Maybe if you've sat at a dinner table with your own parents growing up and sort of seen that educational influence over your own dinner table, you then start using it when you're a parent yourself. And it can be hard, though, at the end of the night when you cook something and you're tired and it didn't go right to hear from other people that it didn't go right. Um, so this overall atmosphere you have in your home, that that's OK, that everything about food is OK, um, makes that possible. Yeah, it does. It, it does. And that's, that's nice. I mean, equally, if I really mess something up, he'll let me know about it. <laughs> and that happens. Um, but I, I think it is really important. I think in so many families, food can become a bit of a battleground. Mealtimes can become a bit of a battleground almost, or just something that you want to get through. Like food is fuel, you know, it's just, we've got to get it done with. And yeah, that's what I want to escape from really. Um, I also think, you know, therapeutically wise, cooking delivers a lot for me. Um, you know, it's one of the things that my son will really let me get on with and give me space to do. And I get a bit of thinking space while I'm cooking. And I 
actually really enjoy the simple action of cooking itself. And that's been very therapeutic for me after Sam's death as well, I think. So it's, it's not just around the eating that I think is a positive experience. I think the cooking itself uh, can be a very positive thing. And you mentioned that everything in this book was originally a tweet. When yeah. you were tweeting it, was it to let everybody know you were okay? Was it to keep yourself accountable? Were you concerned that if you weren't uh, carrying on with the cooking, you might stop? What were the what were the pieces behind that? Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's a good question. I think it was partly just by way of communication with uh, Twitter's been a really great tool for me. I, I've used it educationally, um, to engage. Um, I've used it for outreach with my research. Um, I use it just to talk nonsense, to meet people that I would never have met. I do lots and lots of work in terms of equality, diversity, and inclusion in science, which Twitter has been absolutely invaluable for. So Twitter's been a brilliant tool for me in terms of network building. And I guess when, when Sam died, one of the things that it gave me back was that sense of community um, and that feeling that perhaps I couldn't share a meal with Sam anymore, but I could share the meal. Um, and, and maybe that was part of the reason for doing it was a reaching out from me to feel a little bit less isolated in what was really quite difficult times. I suspect that was a part of it subconsciously. Um, and partly, yeah, my, you know, my mum stalks me on Twitter and various other people. And so my mum would see what I'd had for dinner and she'd know that I'd fed, fed my son and, and that things were going okay. And so there was a little bit of practicality there like that as well. Um, yeah, yeah. How did you find support for your grief? Um, my father passed around the same time as um, your Sam died. And here I found a, um, our hospice has a, a support group for, for grief. Um, and we're not cooking. We're actually a poetry writing group. And so uh, we get together and we're reluctant grief experts now and we, we do poetry. Um, how did you find support? I think that's a really, really good question. Um, and I don't think I have a really great answer to it. Um, support comes in all sorts of different ways uh, from friends and family, of course, um, and more intangibly, as I suggested through Twitter, I didn't join a support group. Um, there was nothing formally offered to me. Uh, there was for my son. So within school, he got uh, some emotional literacy support to help him with his grief. And he would speak to a counselor um, each week, uh, sort of independently. But actually, that's also a role that I tried to play as much as possible within the household, um, you know, trying to encourage him to deal with his grief. And so to some extent, I think perhaps sadly, partly a lot of my focus was on helping him with his grief um, and less on helping myself with my own. And I think that's partly why writing the book ended up being so cathartic, because alongside getting the recipes down, I tried to get a whole slew of memories down onto the pages. And much as they're interesting to the reader, and I think they anchor the recipes emotionally, I think they're as much of an indulgence for myself in terms of capturing these things that happened with Sam, places that we'd been, the way flavors evoke memories of certain places. These were things that I was thinking about while I wrote that, pro while, I, while I cooked the recipe, and I wanted to capture those in the writing of the book. And in part, that was probably part of my own grief counseling 
process that I went through. The stories of him help us feel like we know him. And you've also included pictures. How, how is this also a gift for Sam's family? I was really conscious of that when I wrote it. That's actually one of the ways that the project started. Um, so I wanted to capture these recipes. I wanted to capture them for me and my son, uh, partly so I had them and I didn't have to keep looking at how to, trying to remember how to cook a certain thing. Uh, so it was a practicality uh, and partly to capture the memories. So we had them. And my son certainly sits and looks through the books and looks at the photographs. And as he gets older, begins to read the snippets of the stories and feels like he has ownership of those memories as well. Because he was very young. He was only six when, when Sam died. And it, it helps to make that part of his life more concrete, I think. And equally for Sam's parents and Sam's brothers, part of the reason for doing it was as a gift for them. Uh, and I, I made the book and gifted it, gifted it to them. Um, as a way of capturing something of their son uh, and their brother. There's a picture in the book of your son with, um, it's like a memory box. It's different mm -hmm. objects that he can touch. And in one picture, there's even something for him to smell, to just really evoke Sam for him. What gave you the idea to create that? Um, so uh, partly... I think it was one of the things that I was probably advised to do at some point um, by one of the counsellors as we went through the dying process. Uh, it's a horrible way to put it. But one of the ways that we were lucky is that we knew Sam was dying. Um, it wasn't a sudden accident that took him away out of the blue. He had a progressive failure of his lungs, which, although traumatic and difficult at the time meant we could come to terms with lots of things. We could plan to some extent for when he wouldn't be there anymore. And one of the things we were advised was these ideas like memory boxes um, and getting Sam to write a few little notes if he felt able for our son so that as he gets older, he can read the notes and see things that his pop had written for him. And they're all in the memory box as well. Uh, so it was partly that it's something that we were advised to do. And then the memory box itself, we built it probably a couple of weeks after Sam had died, me and my son went round the house and we talked about what we remembered of Sam and we looked at his things that were out and said, which of these things should we be putting in the memory box? And I largely led that process because he was very young, but I'd pick out items and talk about them and say, oh, these were Sam's old glasses that he used to wear all the time. This was his watch. Do you remember him wearing that watch? And this was his aftershave. Does it smell like him? This is the Marmite that he used to put on his toast in the morning. Why don't you sniff it? Why don't you have a taste of it? Um, so we built it up over time and it was part of the grief process that, I mean, it helped me, um, but it particularly helped our son as well. You talk a bit in the book about um, that you knew he was going to pass and that there was a, a trip that he wanted to take. And you do uh, share how a number of the recipes throughout the book are inspired by previous travels when he was well and you both were really um, enjoying your love of adventure, but there were some things he really wanted to do um, because you both knew that he was going to pass. Can you tell us about that trip that he really wanted to go on? Yeah, I mean, I think there were two things towards the very end that he really, really wanted to do. Um, one uh, was with me and he wanted to visit a restaurant in the UK uh, called Le Manoir Quatre Saisons. It's a, 
a Michelin star restaurant run by a French chef who moved to the UK years ago called Raymond Blanc. It's one of the most famous restaurants in the UK down in Oxfordshire. And it's a beautiful country hotel with a beautiful restaurant and everything they cook comes in out of the garden. Um, and it's really famed for like really beautiful on point vegetable cookery with simple meats and fishes alongside everything seasonal, really beautiful. And Sam wanted to go and stay there and eat there. And he also wanted to give it to me as a, a sort of final gift, if you like. And so that was a final gift he bought for me. And we went when he was really ill. He could barely walk to the dining room by the time we got there. But then we sat in the dining room. And once he was sat and settled and he'd kind of got his breath and everything else, then he just sort of came alive over the evening. And we drank lots and we talked lots into the early hours of the morning, really, over these sort of seven or eight dishes of food that came out. It was really, really, really amazing. Uh, yeah. And the other thing that he really wanted to do before he, before he passed away was get all his family together for one final Christmas. And this was just a couple of weeks after we'd been to Le Manoir, Catch Saison. So he booked a huge cottage out in the countryside where about 25 people could all go and all sleep in the same place uh, and all be together for one huge, crazy family Christmas. And he could be surrounded by all the people he loved, um, all the kids. Um, could have a brilliant time together. And so, yeah, my last Christmas was with him was spent cooking Christmas dinner for 25 people, um, which was a bit of a stress, but loads of fun. You've mentioned that you've uh, written uh, articles and you've presented at conferences. And so you've, you've gone the traditional uh, route of uh, publishing and presenting. And for this book, you self-published. Can you talk to us about why you, uh, why you chose that route? Yeah, I did. Um, uh, why did I choose um, to self-publish? I think publishing a book with a traditional publisher is tough. It's hard work. Um, and you need an agent, ideally, to help you do that. Most publishing houses in the UK won't look at an unsolicited manuscript from an unknown author. They will only look at things that agents pass on to them. So I could have written the book and then I would have got an agent and paid them a retainer and they would have passed my book around publishers and maybe a publisher would have been interested in the book. I don't know. Um, but there would have been a long, drawn-out process um, and then, of course, I could have worked with the publisher and they could have produced something amazing. It would have been nice, really nice. Um, slow process to put together. But actually, I'm not known as a cook or a chef. I have no pedigree as a cookery writer. So I'm moving into a field where I'm not an expert. And although I felt I had a good story to tell and perhaps a good book to write, it would be quite hard for a publishing house to go and market that and and you know because how would they do it and partly it was such a personal story that there was a bit of me that wanted to keep 
full control of it. I wanted to write it. I wanted to design the book. I wanted to choose the photographs. I didn't want somebody coming in and re-photographing everything because a couple of the photographs looked like they were done on my kitchen table and they wanted it to look more professional. I wanted the photographs to be done on my kitchen table. I wanted there to be a bit of mess in the background. Sometimes I wanted it to be honest and true and, and, I might have been able to do all those things with a publisher, but you're really relying on an agent and a publisher getting you. And in self-publishing, I could do all of that process. And the barriers to entry in self-publishing are quite low now. Um, it's quite easy to do these things. I'm very used to producing formatted documents, working as a scientist. I produce camera-ready documents all the time in templates for publishing houses and journals. So setting up a nice template to make the book look nice and making sure it's all formatted nicely. These are kind of things I do in my day job again. So yeah, I decided to go down the self-publishing route and keep control of my own story, I guess, which was nice. It was fun. And it was well received. Uh, it was uh, reviewed by, I believe, an adoption magazine or a parenting magazine. And then uh, a food writers group gave you an award. Yeah, it was that was really lovely. So um, it got reviewed by Adoption Today magazine because our son is adopted. And a, a really key part of the story is how you make an adopted son feel at home in your family and feel a part of the family that that really runs through with food. Food is so important in all families, but especially adopted, adopted families. Um, and, and so it was really nice of them to do a review. That was partly through Twitter. Uh, people that I know who are adopted, uh, adoptive parents who are involved in that magazine follow me on Twitter and they'd seen the book and loved the book and wanted to review it. And so it's one of these examples where Twitter and, and marketing in that way can be really, really powerful. And then the Guild of Food Writers, is, it's the leading uh, food writers guild in the uk it's where all the professional food writers and chefs are members of it and uh, they look for recognition for their work uh, and so the book was entered in the self-published category that they have in their annual food book writing competition and it received a highly commended award from them which was i was just blown away by that i i'd never expected that um at the end of the book, you say one of the wonderful things about food is that it helps you build new memories. How are you doing with building new memories? As someone who has grief herself, I, I don't kind of like the idea of moving on. I think we need to take some of our grief with us. But how are you doing with building new memories? Yeah, I think, uh, and actually, I think that idea of taking grief with us is massively important. And, it, and it's what the book is all about. I mean, I'm making the book sound really down and, and it's not really down because there's many funny memories in there as well and, and so on. But, but it, it's also filled with that grief. It's a way of carrying that grief with me, actually. And that cookbook will sit on my kitchen shelf for the rest of my life, sit on my kitchen cabinet for the rest of my life and hopefully the rest of my son's life. And that, that grief will always be with us. Uh, but it is also important, particularly for him, he's eight, to build new memories with me and to see that things also move on somewhat and that new things will happen and good things will happen on top of the old things. And so I did write about one in the book, just as an example, which um, I went with him on a holiday just before COVID um, to California, actually your neck of the woods. Um, 
And we went all the way down the coast of California from Los Angeles to San Diego. And then I ended up with a chemistry conference in San Diego where there was some childcare attached so he could go to the club and I could do some science at the end. And we had an amazing holiday. And um, we went to Crystal Cove, which is almost halfway between LA and San Diego. And there was a beautiful, we'd spent the morning on the beach and there was this shake shack on the bluff overlooking Crystal Cove with views down to the beach. And they did fries and burgers and amazing, amazing shakes. Um, and so we had these black cherry shakes while we were sat there. And it was one of those moments where we're drinking the shake, looking out at the beach, and we both turned and looked at each other and we just went, wow, that is amazing. And so the black cherry shake was something that I wanted to recreate when we got back to the UK that became something that we can do together and say, wow, do you remember sitting by that beach after we'd spent the morning playing in the sunshine, perfect Californian day, surf crashing in. And then we went and sat there and had that black cherry shake. And that's our memory. And it's all good and it's all positive but it's building on top of the layers of things that are there before. The book to me is not sad. Um, it's honest and it shows, I think to me, the totality of what it's like when, when your life changes like this and the life writing that you did here to me, it does have a lot of parallels to my, uh, to my, to my writing group, even though we're going about it through different ways. Um, but I think I noticed you're writing a second book or you have written a second book. Yeah. So, so I wrote tweet um, and then I followed it up with tweet more. Um, and that kind of completes that story, if you like. So there were other things, other recipes that people got in touch with. Family members got in touch with me and said, look at this recipe. You forgot this one. And they even had it written down in Sam's handwriting um, and said, Sam made this. Do you remember? He, he asked for it on this occasion and that occasion. So there were, there were other things and other memories in there that, that I wanted to capture. And so, yeah, I have those two books, Tweet and Tweet More, the same format really for each of the two books. And for me, they capture everything about me and Sam and what me and Sam were together. And hopefully at some point I'll put a compilation out, which is the two books together in one volume actually as well. That's something that I'm looking to do. Um, but at the moment they're two separate volumes. You mentioned uh, earlier that cooking can be a time when you can be sort of uninterrupted in the kitchen uh, and your, your son can be doing something else, waiting for dinner to be made. But he's eight now and you're moving forward and making new memories. So how are you bringing him into the kitchen and teaching him how to cook? Yeah, so uh, there's quite a lot of things in the book that actually he does cook with me. And if you are a parent, there's quite a lot of things in the book that you could cook alongside a child. Um, there's quite a few things in the book. So, well, I'll step back a moment. One of the bugbears that I have about the way kids are taught to cook in the UK is that they're always taught to bake. They're always taught to make, it's probably the same in the US. They're always taught to make muffins and brownies and cookies and because these are fun and of course kids love them. And so it gets the kids really interested in cooking. Um, but they end up cooking lots of things that perhaps aren't very healthy and are full of sugar. Um, and so I also love the idea of getting kids involved in cooking savory things, things that you're going to sit down and eat for your main course meal. So they can take this real pride and say, well, I put that down in front of dad, you know, or if grandma's coming over, I put that down in front of grandma, you know. Um, and so there's quite a few things in the book, like tray bakes, where you pretty much assemble the ingredients in a tray and then you bang them in the oven 
And then there might be a point at which you have to pull it out of the oven and drop a few more ingredients in and put it back. But essentially, that's it. That's all the cooking is. And there may be some measuring involved and rolling and, and so on. Um, those are the kind of things I love to cook with him and get him involved in because he can really do everything in the process all the way through from beginning to end and feel that he cooked dinner uh, for me. And that's, that's a really nice thing. He takes a lot of pride in that. Um, and actually, you know, he is a kid who's quite a practical kid. And he's a doer, really, more than a academic writing, reading kid in some ways. And given how good his palate is, I can really imagine him one day turning into a chef and going working in a kitchen. And I'd be super proud if that was a way that he wanted to go in his life. Yeah, I was imagining uh, Tweets 3's uh, recipes inspired or created by your son. Yeah, that would be fantastic. I mean, I'd really, I'd really love that. And, you know, I... Cooking with kids is something that, that is really interesting. You do have to think about things differently, particularly he's just beginning to get to the age now where you can think about using knives in the kitchen with sort of supervision, whereas, of course, younger than seven or eight, you really can't imagine giving a child a knife and doing something. So you have to think of things that are knifeless at that age, and so that does limit you a bit. But as he gets older, there'll be more things that he'll be able to do increasingly. It'll be a lot of fun. What do you hope this conversation sparks for listeners? I think it's covered this really broad ranging ground. And I, what I hope it sparks is that, you know, I, I've kind of hopped between my academic life, my personal life, and this me as a chef, which is this co or as a cook or as a writer, which is a sort of wholly new thing for me and, and a side venture really, and, and a bit of fun, but they're all kind of linked in some ways. The skills that hold those things together link between the different things that I do. And I try to, at least I try to see or know what my strengths are and play to them in different settings and do things that I enjoy that, that give me pleasure. I got I, I didn't write the book because I felt I had to. I wrote the book because it was a burning passion. I wanted to get it out of me. I was desperate to tell those stories and get that stuff down on paper. It just became an all-consuming passion when I wrote the book. And what I hope people take away, I guess, is that you can follow your passions. You can be professional in a career, but that doesn't mean that you can't follow your passions, whatever they may be. And, you know, if you want to go and be a serious researcher or scientist, that doesn't mean that all you ever have to do with your life is science or research. You can have a personal life. You know, I'm very keen on equality and inclusion in science and making science accessible to everybody, irrespective of who they are and what they want to do. And you can also follow your passions. You know, it might be sport, it might be cooking, it might be writing, it might be science shouldn't be exclusionary of people with other skills and other talents. And actually, the talents that you have in different ways and different areas can all feed together synergistically and and help you in your career and vice versa, actually. It sounds like your life is better for following your passions and so is your science. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I mean, I certainly feel that my life is better and my life is more balanced. And I, I think that makes my science better. I, I think having that breathing space away from science makes me more creative and better able to think about science when I'm doing my research um, because I've had that decompression from the science. And it also gives me a different viewpoint on some of it. Uh, lots of what we're doing in my lab is currently quite creative in 
slightly less traditional ways for a chemist. You know, I come from a background where you might do lots of synthesis, but at the moment we're playing with lots of techniques, perhaps a bit like I might in the kitchen. We're trying to 3D print things and we're trying to make little beads from some of our materials and we're trying to fabricate things with photo patterning and we're doing much more sort of engineering techniques things. And I think a lot of that's come through from thinking and feeling about techniques in cooking as well. And so I think ideas that you have in one place bounce off and impact in other places as well. All the creative ways of thinking. Yeah, I hope so. And I mean, the other thing about being a, a scientist, which comes through in the book as well, is that it's not an individual venture, right? It's a team exercise. My science is how it is because I work as part of a research group. My cooking and my food is how it is because of my family. Partly it's steered by what the eight-year-old likes to eat, what my son likes to eat. And partly it's because of what Sam liked to eat and his influences on me. And all of those things come together. Things, recipes handed down from my mum or my grandma or Sam's parents all come together to make what I eat in the kitchen and what I do at home in the same way that a team would work together in the lab. Thank you so much for being here today, Professor Smith, and telling us about your book, Tweet, a little book with big feelings and short recipes for very busy lives, and for telling us about your work in the chemistry lab. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.